If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 18. And as you make your way to John chapter 18, please stand and we'll be beginning in verse 28. In verse 28 it says, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas in, unto the hall of judgment, and it was early, and they said, or, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Then Pilate said unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put a man to death. That they say in, uh, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, saying, Thou this thing of thy, say, sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did the others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me, and hast thou done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, and I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate said unto the, him, Art thou the king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews. And I'm going to stop there, and you may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this time that we are able to look into your word. Lord, hide us uh, behind your cross, Lord. Um, let us be your servants. Let us uh, bring glory and honor to you, Lord. And as those that hear your word, hear the truth, Lord, that your mercy and your grace, Lord, will be just uh, poured out upon those that hear. Give them ears to hear, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here we see Jesus has been led to Pilate because the Jews basically wanted to kill him, right? And the Jews couldn't put a man to death. And so here we see the conversation with Jesus and Pilate. And the conversation they have, and you know, Pilate's asking Jesus all these questions. Are you the king of the Jews? And he's like, hey, you know, this is what they, this is, uh, this is what you're saying and everything. And Pilate turns around and says one very pointed question. What is truth? And I find that rather curious because as Christians today, we know what truth is. And that's what we're going to dive into because there are two or three different points I want to make out. One is the perception of truth. The second is the power of truth, and the third is the personality of truth. In the Bible, truth is mentioned 222 times. And it is mentioned 22 of those 222 times here in the Gospel of John. So John actually has the word of truth 10% 
of the time. And so I, I think John is uh, it's sort of like if we were to say he had a theme, it was truth. And as we look into truth, especially in today's world, we know that people have a very skewed view of what truth actually is. Pilate had come to believe what many in his day believed, that really there is no absolute truth, and really that's what people believe today. We are in the same shape, especially in, you look at a lot of the younger people. I'll read a few statistics here, that 67% of adults in America don't believe in absolute truth. 91% of teenagers don't believe in absolute truth, truth, and much worse, 52% of born-again professing Christians believe that truth is relative. According to another survey, 75% of professing Christians cannot accept the idea of absolute truth. Now, why is this alarming? It's alarming because when we start looking at what truth actually is. It's alarming because those that profess Christ cannot say he is not truth and absolute. To say that truth is a perspective, to say that truth is relative and all a point of view, our God doesn't work with relative statements. God works with absolute statements and he works with those and we read that throughout God's word. He is an absolute uh, authority figure amongst all creation. If I say a rock is hard, right, and water is wet, grass is green, and you don't believe me and say, you know what, actually, uh, that's your truth, that's not my truth. To me, a rock is soft, you know, water is dry, and, you know, grass is purple. You know, but here's the thing. Truth is absolute. Here's the thing. I'm either right or I'm wrong. Perception. If there is truth, truth can be known. How can we learn what truth is then? Jesus tells us three times in John's Gospel that the Spirit of God is a spirit of truth. Therefore, believers are in a far better position to learn the truth because the Spirit of truth who lives within us teaches us. And the world, on the other hand, has this, a spirit within them, but the spirit within the world blinds them to this truth. So the perception of truth, there are two different types of perceptions. You have the believer perception of truth, and you have the lost in their perception of truth. This is why it's important for us to go out and tell people about Jesus and him dying on the cross. Because when we don't do this, they don't hear the good news. They don't hear the gospel. They don't hear the gospel of truth, about the person of truth, and we teach through the word of truth, do we not? And so when we think about our daily lives, what you're doing tomorrow, if you're sitting here today, you don't know who Jesus is, you don't really know what truth is. Sure, we understand truth to a certain extent. You know, if you have a kid and they take a cookie off a counter. Mom goes over there, did you take a cookie? No, I didn't take the cookie. Well, you're not telling me the truth. 
we have that extent of knowing between a lie and what is truth. But when we talk about absolute truth, truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. And let me, before we actually get to what truth is, we know that there are different perceptions. Let's look at the power of truth and what God's word has to say about that. Not only does Jesus tell Pilate that there is such a thing as absolute truth, he also tells him that this truth has power. And in this statement, he says this, okay, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Now, bear witness unto the truth, who's he bearing witness to? He's bearing witness to the world of the truth. When Jesus died on the cross, all mystery, all of that, the veil, even in the, in the synagogue, it was ripped, you know. There was no more mystery. We know who the, the truth. We, we, he took that away. He was saying, hey, look, I am the way. I am what? The truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So the truth in John chapter 3, 21 says this, but he that doth the truth come to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, and that they are wrought in God. But he who doth truth, when we think about what we do as Christians, and if we do them in truth, we are doing our deeds through the spirit of truth. Okay? And, and, and there's no arguing that when good is done in this world, that it's only done by God. It's not by, done by me. It's not done by you. If I do something what we would say is good, then we give God the glory for that because there's nothing that I can do outside the power of Christ that is good. Truth has the power to liberate. John 8.32 says this, And ye shall know the truth, right? And the truth shall make you free. Now, isn't that a curious statement? You shall know the truth. All right. Well, what is the truth? You still have the question there, don't you? Well, you shall know the truth and it shall make you free. Great. Tell me what the truth is. We'll get there. Truth also has the power to separate. John 17, 17 says this, Sanctifies them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So the word of God sanctifies us. What does sanctify mean? It means to separate. It means to, uh, you know, if you take water and oil, shake it up in a bottle, it's eventually going to separate. You see, God is the judge. And one day, he's going to sift those that are his out of this world. And the remaining that aren't his are going to be looking at eternal judgment in a place called hell. That is a scary thing to think about, but it's the absolute truth. And we can't hide from truth. When I think about those that say, that's your truth, not mine, those are cowards. I'm going to say it because here's the thing. I know exactly why someone would say, well, that's your truth, not mine. It's because they have to justify in their mind their life. 
when they're not the ones that created their own life. God is the one that created their life, purposed it, illustrated it, and governs it. Truth also has the power to invigorate. In other words, it has the power to make alive. God is a spirit. According to John 4, 24, it says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit, right, and in truth. Now, now what does that mean? How does this invigorate us? Because when we worship God, it's not about us even receiving. At this point, it's us pouring out the love that we have towards God because of the love that he first gave us. And that's through song. It's through our deeds. It's through our actions. It's through what we say and how we act. So we can argue all day about the perception with others, but here's the thing. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time arguing perception with people. Just live as the king would have you live. Live your life Walk it in truth, because God says that they will have no excuse. You share the truth with others, if they disagree, that's on them. So we have the perception of truth, we see some of the power of truth, and ultimately the power of truth is through the gospel that we hear, and that we are able to receive. And that's that Jesus died on the cross for you and I, he died because the punishment of your sin and my sin ultimately separates us from God, and we are deserving of a place in hell of God's wrath for eternity. But God loved us, correct? And he sent his son to die for us. And when Jesus died for us, that opened a way. And that way is through Jesus. So let's look at who Jesus is. Let's look at the personality of truth. This would be the last point the personality of truth, and we actually read John 17, 17, about that the truth can sanctify, but it also said something at the very end of that verse. It said this, and I'll just read the whole verse. It says, it sanctifies them through the truth, and it says, thy word is truth. Now, if we think about, if God says, thy word is truth, if we believe and say, hey, we claim we know who God is, and if God says he's absolute, why is it that only, what was it, 50-something percent of newborn-again believers, not newborn-again, but believers, believe that truth is relative? That's discerning, is it not? That means half of those that claim to know Jesus as their personal Savior don't believe in absolute truth. That's a terrifying thing because that means I don't absolutely believe that Jesus saved me, if you would think that way. But we know he has as those that are truly believers. And so we know that scripture is truth. But also Jesus is. John 14, 6 says this, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth. In the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. I don't know how much more absolute you can get other than personifying what truth is. And that is that Jesus is truth. And we read that the word of God 
is truth. And we read in other scriptures that Jesus says he is the word. He makes all these comparisons and connections saying, I am the truth. And everything under heaven, under earth, under the sea, all power, all authority is given unto Jesus. All power. How can we say as Christians that truth is relative? Because the moment we do, our evangelism, our witnessing, we lose the, really the power of truth at that point to evangelize. When you tell others about Jesus, you're able to look and see the change that he has made within yourself. That's power enough there because that took the power of the cross and the blood of Christ to do. And I'll leave you with this. In 2017, I couldn't find a newer survey on this, but in 2017, about 5,000 people were asked, do you believe in God or not? 80% of those 5,000 people said they did, and 20% said they didn't. Okay, that doesn't surprise me, but they actually went further. Out of those 80%, 56% of those believed in God as described in Scripture. Okay, so now we're looking at an overall about 40% of people believe in God in the Scripture. But when we look back to our assessment before, it cuts it in half saying that they don't even believe that truth was relative. The whole point in all these number games, I love looking at numbers, but the whole point is to show that there is a decline my mentor, he would always, when he would teach on families and passing on the baton to, you know, the grandparents passing it on to their kids and their kids and their kids, you know, he would have uh, three chairs lined up in a row, and he would say, okay, here, here, here's Grandpa. He went to church and everything, and uh, he brought his family, you know, and, and then here's the next generation, and they decide not to do, do something. And by the time the next generation came, they, they don't even go to church when I talk about decline, it is important. It is a struggle, okay? Christian life is not easy. Christian life is something that you and I have to strive, and we strive through it through the Word of God, through the truth that we have. And I'll leave with this thought. God perceives himself. When we have a perception of truth, Guess what? God has his own perception of who he is, and it's absolute. And he perceives himself to us by the power of his absolute truth. What is that? That's his word. And he does it through the absolute truth, through the person of truth. That is Jesus. And if we don't stand fast on the word of truth, then what governs us? Is it just our thoughts, our feelings? Do we want to live as if we do not know who God is? No. We live by the word of God. It is what guides us in our daily walks. It guides us when we stumble, 
It guides us when we fall. But there's so much more to truth because now we're talking about the whole of Scripture. And that's where we know that there's mercy when we know that there is grace. And at this time, I'm going to ask Brother Tommy to come forward and deliver the second part. Hello. Is that better? All right. Technical. Tech. Every week. Now I get me get this I've got to take my now I gotta get this hook back on this belt somehow. Let it dangle. Good morning. I told you in the in Sunday school you weren't gonna get rid of me. You gotta gotta deal with me for a little bit longer. <coughs> I'm going to ask for you to stand one more time. I'm reading from uh, our, our Bible reading is going to be, scripture reading is going to be from 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 and verse 10. And you're like, man, this is only one verse. This ought to be pretty, pretty simple and this must be pretty quick. Don't let that fool you. I can talk for a long time. All right. 1 Peter 5 and verse 10 goes like this. But the God of all grace who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Let us pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, I come to you in prayer to thank you for this wonderful opportunity to preach your word. May I preach your word in truth, rightly divide it. We pray for the recipient of these words, that, Lord, they may receive your truth. That, Lord, that you may give me grace and mercy to whom I preach about today. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord today. Thank you for those who have come to listen. We just pray, Lord, that we may be strengthened by your word, that we may be convicted, that we may be stable, that we may be thoroughly furnished, that the saints may be perfect. That, Lord, that we seek your will. And let us seek your will. Help us in our hearts to have the right motive to what we do as we respond to the work, to your wonderful work of grace. We love you and we thank you. Just pray for the, the time together. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Okay. First Peter 5 and verse 10, you say, well, when I was given this uh, grace, I thought about it and I thought about it and I prayed about it, and I just can't give you grace by word and definition. I have got to show you the application. And in preaching and teaching, when you do this, that's, basic, that, that's what you're doing. When you're preaching, you're preaching the Word of God, you're preaching what it means, and you have to apply it. Now, I can sit here all day long, and I can tell you what I titled this. The, the title of my sermon is Grace. And it is G-R-A-C-E. Okay, and you're saying, well, why are you spelling this out? Because it is this, God's riches at Christ's expense. 
And I say that, and you're like, well, all right. And that's the reason why, for the next question, that's why I decided to preach from 1 Peter 5.10. Because that verse and that verse alone gives us the understanding. It is the culmination of grace. And where does grace come from? Who, by, how do we receive grace? And what grace looks like, the purpose of grace. Now, if looking back now that I said this in front of all of y'all, I wish I'd have numbered this out in my outline because that's great, but I didn't do it like that. So now you've got to bear with me. We've got to chase. We've got to go around and around, okay? Sorry. But my mind doesn't work like that. My mind works different now than it does when I'm in, a, in, in my office, okay? Definition of grace is the unmerited favor given to sinners by God for eternal salvation from sin because of his love through us, the Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus, by his sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, if, we, if I could stop right there and I could tell you that and let's all go home. But I'm a preacher and I can't let you do that. Grace in the Greek is chorus. <laughs> you got to get it in the throat there and I never have been a chorus. Chorus, and it means grace favor, benefit, and gift. You know, the definite, and you want to go a little further about the thing of, di- uh, of gift, of d- defining a gift, is a gift that is freely given without any merit. You did, in other words, I did not do anything to get it. See, that is in direct contrast to death and sin. Because the scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death. God gives us grace. So see, we don't need the gift of sin. <laughs> we, we come by come by that natural. We have, we, we have stored up for us the day of wrath. Our understanding our wages, what we earn, is death. Wages of sin is death. Complete contrast. But you have to understand that in order to receive grace. Can I get another round of amens? All right. All right. Grace is an attribute of God manifested in the salvation of sinners and is necessary for the continuing sanctification of the saints. So you have three things here. A lot of times God works in threes. You have the justification, you have the sanctifi- uh, you you have the justification, you have the sanctification, and then you have the glorification. Let me define that for you real quick. Your justification is being justified before God. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ does. And we'll get into that, and I'll relate this to the passage, uh, but I want to give you a brief overview, and this is all going to be free. You, it doesn't cost you any, any extra, okay? We're not going to charge you by the word here. But you have to understand that once you give your life to Jesus, have faith in him, that means that you have repented, that means that you have changed your mind about who you are and how you do and how, and how sin, you're, you're understanding your perception of sin. You have to, you have to, your mind has to be changed on that. I said this morning in, our, uh, in, in, in Sunday school that sin is so severe that Christ had to die for it. Now, that in and of itself, you have to change your mind if you do not think that sin is bad. 
And, you, and getting into this, you understand why Christ had to suffer, not just die, but suffer for that. So, so God had to come down into eternity, leave his abode on high, come down, step down, be born humbly to take form of a man, take a form of those who he came to save, which is human beings, and suffered and died on the cross. That's how severe sin is. So once you've done that, that's saving grace, by the way. Once you've learned that, now you, become, you, you work on the sanctification. And that's right there in 1 first, first Peter 5, and I'll read this again. All right, so the, so the who, but the God of all grace. God is the God of grace. That's where, God, that's where grace originates. That is his attribute. That it, with being holy and perfect, he's gracious and he's merciful. So we have grace every day. I've always said this, and, and this is just my, my, uh, my, my southern upbringing, but you've got to have grace to brush your teeth. Everybody's like, oh, now he's done left us. No, I haven't done left you. You've got to have grace. And day, from day to day time, do you understand whether you're a believer or you're not a believer? And I'm not talking about saving grace. But you have to have the grace of God that keeps the planets in line, the planets rotating, the weather the way it is, the, 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 your heart beating. Do you understand you have to have that grace from God that gives you your heartbeat? You have to have air in your lungs. That's grace from God. Got to have that. So at the time after you were born again and you've experienced the, 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 great, the salvation, grace by uh, Grace that comes from salvation. You are being sanctified from the time that covers from, okay, so justification ends all of your life that is being on sin. And Ephesians 2 tells us that we were once children of wrath. Now you're justified before God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now you become sanctified. You've got to live your life totally and you're maturing. That's where the conflict, that's where the, hard, that's where the work really starts. And I say the work really starts is because now you've got two people in the driver's seat fighting for the control of that car. And the car is you. And I'll say this, and you're like, this is in Scripture too. So we have the who. We say how. Who hath called us unto eternal grace by Christ Jesus. So the way we obtain grace is through the faith in Christ Jesus. All right, number two. So I'm moving down this outline, but I've still got a lot more here to tell you. So after that, you have suffered a while. Guess what happens to sanctify you, to start getting you to the next level, to the next place in your life? Guess what you got to do? God has ordained it that you suffer. They're like, well, I don't like that. You would if you was truly born again, because then you would try to understand why am I suffering. Why are you suffering? You're suffering because God's grace gives you, the, gives you that to suffer. You've always read in Scripture, and you've always heard people when they say, when I'm suffering, you're supposed to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Everybody, who in their right mind would thank you for suffering? Well, that's the reason why the, th the foolish things of this world, the preaching of the word, doesn't make, does not make sense to the world because it's a total contrast. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn. Come on, blessed are those who mourn. So you're telling me you're the happiest when you're the saddest. Absolutely, because you've sold out the things of this world doesn't matter to you. You've sold out for the kingdom of God. Can I tell you that if you're born again, your life, this is not your best life now. Your best life begins when you die. And that leads me to glorification. That is the time you get this new body. That means you do not have to deal with the rigors of this old one. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us about the rapture. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive, when it happens, then we meet God calls us up to him in the air. Paul says to the Corinthians, 
There are bodies for the terrestrial, and there are bodies for the celestial. In other words, this body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We have to be outfitted with a new body, and that body has to be in total uh, agreements with our souls if we've been born again. Everybody with me so far? Is this, mud, is this as clear as mud water? Huh? This clear to mud, is this as clear as a mud hole on a gravel road? Huh? Swamp water. All right, so now you have to deal with, uh, we, we talk about grace to give you the overview, the sovereignty of God. Two sides of the same coin. The sovereignty of God tells us this. It is the, God is in control of all things. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Me and Mike talked about that in the men's prayer uh, this morning talking about our joy everything ties everything correlates comes together when it comes to this and in all and in God's sovereignty there are three attributes here that we have to understand that God God is omniscient he knows everything God is omnipotent he's all-powerful God is omnipresent he's everywhere presence he's everywhere time does not pertain to God and I go back and I give you a little a little extra dab of this that's why when a lot of your prophets in the Old Testament prophesied for things to come, time wasn't involved. Because you're getting, you're getting your words, you're getting divine revelation from a God who's outside of time. In other words, in two of that, if you knew when the days, the hours are coming, what would you do? You would live the way you wanted to right up to the time, wouldn't you? But the problem is with that is you've got to deal with a heart issue. And you won't. Nobody knows a time. So you're dealing with a God that is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Okay, with that, today we're going to look at the, the, the uh, end of the first, uh, the first book of Peter, chapter 5 and verse 10, to discuss saving grace. Now, you've got to understand that First Peter was written around A.D. 62 to A.D. 64, and he's talking to the, uh, most scholars believe, it's to the persecuted Gentile Christians. Okay? We've already indicated that uh, grace is provided through the disciplines of life. God allows us to suffer that he might be able to shed his grace upon us. When we suffer, we come to the end of ourselves and learn to lean on him. We die to ourselves daily, the scripture tells us. Grace is supplied only when those who sense their need for him, first we suffer, then as we suffer, he equips us, he confirms us, and he puts a foundation under us. You say, well, don't I already have a, a foundation under me? You have a foundation, but you don't know what to do with it. You don't have any direction. All you know is what you know. Remember I was telling you about babes and being milk of the word when you're first born. You don't know anything. You don't have any, you don't have any direction for that. You don't know what that foundation is going. You don't know what to, be, uh, what to do with that foundation, how to lay it out, how to build the walls, how to bring, how to, bring to the chief cornerstone. Jesus. All you know is there's a cornerstone there. See, that's why Paul uses a lot of building analogies because it comes in layers. There is, the, the, it, things come in season. You're saved because you understand that Jesus Christ is a stone that's not made with hands. He's the chief cornerstone by which all the doctrine of the apostles, they were the foundation. Everything, all the thing, everything they had came from him. So that's the same thing with the chief cornerstone is you've got to have that chief cornerstone for your marker to begin with. Now, I really roughly and really vaguely went over that. That's because I'm pressed for time. <laughs> the preacher knows I'm with time, 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 time. All right, uh, I'm a little intense because I'm having to go through this. All right, so here's some, 
Here's the God of all grace. Let's go, let's start right there. There is grace to grace. John 1, 16. I'm going to give you scripture. We're going to have to move fast. Okay? And I'm sorry I'm going to leave you behind and I'm probably going to... I'm probably going to put a lot there out there. I've got a lot of information to cover. And if you want to know it, I'll, give, I'll make copies of the outline. You can have it, okay? John 1.16 says, And of his fullness have all we sinned, and grace for grace. Grace and depravity go hand in hand, knowing that the depth of our depravity and the sinfulness, we understand the depth of God's grace. Maturity. Remember when I told you this morning that in order to understand God's grace, you have to understand your depravity. And for the times when you don't understand it, there's God's grace. Grace to grace. Daily. You've got to have the grace of God in everything you do, people. Everything you do. Whether you're outside the will of God or you're walking in fellowship with God. Whether you're born again or you're not. Can I just tell you, just because you don't see the speed limit sign doesn't mean there's a speed limit. There's saving grace. In Ephesians 2, 8, 10, 8 through 10 says this, For by grace ye are saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The full ordination of God for our lives. Now people say, well, I'm going to get into this. Well, we, you know, if we're already foreordained, this is, this is taken out of context here. And they're like, well, if God already knows, then why don't we just let him do what he's going to do? It's going to happen anyway. That's not how that works. I was picking the brain of pastor today, the other day, and we was talking about this, and he says, you know, Tom, we have to preach the word of God from our perspective. We can't preach it from God's because we don't know. All we do know is we, the words that he's allowed us, that he's allowed to shed light on us. But we know this, that what we see right now is an image in a dull mirror. But when we're born again and we're glorified, when we see him, then everything's going to be manifest clearly. But right now, we do have that dullness. Dullness in our senses that we are living by faith, not blind faith. Serving grace. And all of this stuff is progressive. After you're born again, this is, this is progressive. Grace to grace. There's grace upon grace to even... Because here's the thing. Do you know if God died... If, God, <laughs> if, you, if there's not grace to get you through the day, the one time that you come to him and experience saving grace, do you know you have to have grace to experience saving grace? Do you understand that you were lost? That there was grace for you every day until that day somebody took the burden upon themselves? and answered the call, and gave the gospel to you, and changed your life forever? Do you understand that you cannot ask God to forgive you if there's no breath in your lungs? People don't understand. People don't see that. People don't study that. People don't understand. But that's the truth. You have to have grace to get to grace. Now, I'm moving on because, again, there's that thing of time. Serving grace. This is progressive. I said, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. And this thing keeps popping. Is it too close? I don't understand. Is that better? Oh, can y'all still hear me? For I am the least of the apostles. This is Paul talking. That I am, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, uh, meant to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than all 
Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Paul says, I didn't work at this. This was bestowed upon me. What I did was my obedience in answering to the grace of God, the work that God is doing in me, and then I take that and I answer that and I go out and do works. God has to initiate. When, we leave, when you leave today, please understand that everything is of God. Your life, who you are, everything comes from God. God. You need God. You need God. Sanctifying grace. Oh, here's that word again. Romans 5, 17, For by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Talking about Adam. That's why when we're born... Remember this morning when I told you that we are sinners because we were born that way, right? You know why? Because of Adam. The Adamic curse. Much more they which received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. He is the second Adam in Scripture. I'm not blaspheming that. Jesus Christ. He is the second Adam. By one, we in, sin entered, our, entered the, 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 the realm of, of earth, of, of existence. And by Jesus, it is taken care of. Boy, nobody wants to hear that. Uh, <clears throat> heard it talking as researching this heard it this week is that you have the man sinned under the perfect idyllic conditions man was redeemed through the worst possible suffering on a cross death man let in sin enter through the perfect condition no strife whatsoever in a garden which was all provided for him. Isn't that contrast for you? Would that not be contrast for you? That sent into the world in a perfect condition. Everything was good. All we had was free will and a law that says don't touch that fruit. Don't eat of it. That's it. Jesus died under the most horrible conditions and yet did not sin. That's how you become sanctified. That's saving grace. Romans 6, 17, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Sacrificing, sacrificing grace. 2 uh, Corinthians 8, 1 through 9, The churches of Macedonia were an example of giving. <coughs> like Christ he gave and sacrificed unselfishly despite their own afflictions, for they had but little. The Corinthians were abound. They were, had abundance of what Paul says. Of Macedonia were even they were giving to themselves so they were giving and they didn't have for others so sacrificing grace is the grace that you these these are all what I'm saying is if you haven't got it by now all of these are disciplines and these are seasons in the, the believers life in a person's life these are the disciplines Okay, and, 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 and when I say this, it is not a work that you can be done. In other words, God gives you the grace. He gives you the work. Your obedience to, to, to that work that you're doing in him equals this. Equals this. Sanctifying grace. Singing grace. Speaking grace. Strengthening grace. Suffering grace. James 4, 6 says, but he giveth more grace 
grace. Wherefore he said, God resisteth the proud, but give grace to the humble. We come right back to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount when he gave, blessed are those who poor in spirit. Conclusion. The word perfect here in this text in the Greek means to completely, thoroughly repair, mend, prepare, restore, which brings us to full circle to, again, also, you remember on the seashores of Galilee, what did Jesus, when he picked up the, the apostles, when he called them first to be fishers of men, what were they doing? They were mending nets. Mending nets. So this is also a corporate grace in the sense is that us as individuals, come together to fellowship to form a tight bond for the church to be called out to disciple to make believe to lead other people to Christ to disciple to baptize we go back to the great commission in Matthew 28 James and John were called by the way they were the two that were mending their nets Grace is the unmerited favor necessary for salvation and sanctification of all believers in order to accomplish the will of God in our lives unto our until our glorification. In other words, God uses his pinnacle of his creation to save the pinnacle of his creation, man to man. He said it before, why does he use men to preach the word of God? We don't ever know. We don't know. But this is our voice. This is what we do. The pinnacle. We're the human. We're, we're the, the populace. We are mankind. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. And he uses us to preach the word so that others may come to Christ. And this Titus 2, 11 and 12 says this. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Saving grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Let us pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, thank you for this time. We pray for Brother Dane as he comes and he concludes our message and our, our time today. We thank you for him. Thank you for the men who carry that torch of the word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to, to be able to preach it. We pray that it may hit the mark today and that those who leave here may understand your grace better today and that they may pursue it. It may lead to them to, to pursue this, even in their hearts to understand this more, that you may sanctify them, that one day they may, and they look for that great hope of their glorification. We pray for the justification of those who do not know you today, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. I want to give it to you plain and straight. My responsibility is mercy. We've heard from truth. We've heard from grace. It leads us to mercy. We put them in this order on purpose. It's not because we just like the order per se. You've got to have truth first and then you find grace. And once grace is found, mercy is given. That's why we're excited about this, this uh, triage of, uh, of, of topics today. So I'm going to give you mercy. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'll be real quick. Here's what it says. This, we're going to start in verse 1, read down through verse 7. 
It says, And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And then you come to verse 7, and it reads this way, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, what we find in this passage of Scripture is a progression that happens at salvation. Salvation is found in verses 3 through 6. It is what we call, uh, the first four of these Beatitudes are, are found, the inner changes that produce, are produced in succession. You find out you're destitute in spirit, and you, that's the kingdom of heaven. You understand a, a place for you. Blessed are they that mourn, because you're mourning over your sins. They'll, they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they understand their position before God. And finally, you get to verse 6. It says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the natural progression of salvation. You begin to seek out the things that are righteous and holy. Then you get to verse 7, and they begin to manifest in your life personally. That's where we are. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy is something that is given once mercy is understood. You cannot give mercy if you've never experienced mercy. You can talk about it. You can talk about it in platitudes. You can talk about it in, in some kind of dystopian view of, of what mankind calls mercy. But I'm going to tell you, unless you've experienced the mercies of God, you will never give mercy away. Not in, the, not in the biblical sense. So I want to give you some things today which kind of help you with that. There was a, a story that's told after the death of President Calvin Coolidge about uh, he was asleep in his hotel room with the Secret Service outside and a thief had broken into the hotel room where he was staying. And he began to pilfer through his things and it woke the president up. And as the president was, was sing, sitting there in, in his bed and he was looking over at the young man who was the thief, he said, please don't take this certain item, it means a great deal for me. It was a, an engraved uh, piece of jewelry that he, had, he needed to keep. And after talking to him for a few minutes, he managed to get his wallet back from the man. Come to find out that the young man was a student and had stayed in the hotel but couldn't afford the room and needed money to get out. And so he had broken into this room that was just a, a floor uh, down from him. He had come in through the window. And the Secret Service missed him. And so... At the end of that conversation, Calvin Coolidge fished around his wallet and pulled out $32 to give to that young man for his stay that night. And he says, you better leave by the window again so the Secret Service doesn't catch you. And understand something else. This is not, this is not just a gift. It's a loan for you. And that loan was paid back, by the way. You see, all Calvin Coolidge had to do was scream out or cry out, and the Secret Service would have busted through the door and held the young man down and probably arrested him and threw him in jail. But mercy was given because the, that man who was president at the time knew what mercy looked like. I wonder if we understand what really what mercy is. Mercy is compassion in action. It's the, it's the thing that happens on the other side of grace. When grace is given to you, you now be understand, begin to understand how mercy can operate. Because you didn't deserve grace. It wasn't owed to you. God owes you zero he doesn't owe you the breath you're breathing right now. What He does want, though, is to give it to you. So there is a thing called common grace. That's what Brother Tommy was talking about a moment ago. And then you move to the saving grace when He talks about that. Then you begin to understand mercy. Because 
salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is given by the Lord. It's, it's something that we didn't earn, that God is giving because He loves us. Mercy comes on the backside of grace. So let's talk about it, mercy. Mercy, it's elios in the Greek. It means compassion to help. It means, not, it's not just a feeling. Mercy moves. Mercy meets the need where it is. Jesus is our example. He healed the sick, was a companion to the lonely, gave sight to the blind, but the world hated Him and even crucified Him. Showing mercy towards other men does not guarantee they'll return that mercy, by the way. Only God will grant you mercy by the promise found here in the passage we just read. So that's the meaning of mercy. Let's talk about the importance of mercy in compassion in comparison to other things. Mercy and forgiveness, for instance. Forgiveness is a natural product of mercy. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we ourselves were also sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God and our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. You see, mercy was something that w was not earned on our behalf. Forgiveness wasn't even, we didn't even know to ask for it. But mercy comes because God sees our need and moves towards it. That's what mercy does. How about mercy and love? Let's compare those two for a moment. They sound like they ought to be together. Mercy comes out of love, though. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God, who is rich in His mercy, in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins and trespasses. You see, God saw us at our worst and said, I'm going to help. And I'm going to give you grace and provide mercy. Because you don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it. That's how, that's how love works, with mercy. So then what's next? Well, that's not hard. Let's take a look back in our, in, in right here where we are. Grace and mercy together. Let's see what that looks like in comparison. Grace and mercy are close cousins. In fact, we're told that you know, they, uh, mercy deals with the consequences of sin, but grace deals with the sin itself. So when you sin, you need grace. The consequences of that grace says, no, I'm going to forgive you and, and provide you mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Because if I gave you what you deserve, it's death. That's what God says. And He says, no, I'm going to give you mercy. Grace deals with the sin itself, but mercy deals with the consequences of it. In relation to salvation, mercy says, no, it's hell for you. But grace says, it's heaven for you. Mercy says, I pity you. Grace says, I pardon you. Right? That's the differences. But what's the source of mercy? That's point number three. The source of mercy is God's being the true source. See, we talked about truth a while ago. When Eric spoke of truth, it's not what we call relative. A lot of people like to call truth relative. Well, it's whatever is relative to me. Not really. Not at all. God, it, it, God is always, the truth of God is always objective, not relative. Now, what's the difference? Well, a relative truth means that it can change. It's relative to the circumstance. But objective truth says, no, I'm placing something in that, that object has now become the truth. And so objective truth becomes truth in God specifically. That's why we can say that there is absolute truth because God is absolute. There's not uh, any give with him on that. 
But what does it look like? Psalm 103, verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward them that fear Him. You see, God desires to give us mercy. And through Christ, we can attain it. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were... Let me just read it. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have received the atonement. See, it's all found there. But what does the practice of mercy look like? See, you can understand it from the, from the perspective of someone who's been saved. They get it. They understand mercy. But what does it look like manifested from that person? How does it re respond in, in, in kind in the, in the world today? Well, that's the easy part. Showing mercy is because you've seen it from God. So you replicate what God does. You can't say, I forgive sins, but you can say, I forgive you. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7 says, If there be any, uh, any among you a poor man uh, of one of thy brethren within the, any of thy gates in thy land of the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother, but thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. You see, mercy says, I'm going to help you even if I don't know you. Mercy says, I'm going to help. Luke chapter 10, verse 33. This is the Samaritan, the story of the Samaritan. It says, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed where he came, he was, and when he saw, he had compassion on him, the traveler. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. That's called compassion in action. Showing mercy through our attitudes, maybe. A little different. Luke chapter 10, verse 30 says, And Jesus answering, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. This is the other side of that story. Which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, departing, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Be careful. You can show, be unmerciful in your attitude as well as merciful. Showing spiritual mercy. How about that? Mercy through pity. Grieving for those who are lost. See, this is something I think sometimes we lose as believers. I'll finish up here in just a minute. We need to grieve over those who are lost around us. You see, God looks down in, into, into space and time and says, I know who's going to be saved. But we live in space and time, and I have no idea who will be saved, but I know there's a great many who aren't. And so I preach accordingly. I preach the message of the gospel so that people can be saved, not so that we can just live in, live in our salvation, but that they might attain salvation too. That's being merciful. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patience in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. You see... I don't know who's going to be saved. I don't know if you will be saved, but I'm going to give you the truth so you can be saved. Once I give you the truth, then grace can work its work. 
And once grace has worked its worth, you will understand mercy. What's the results of, of, of being, being merciful or, or even obtaining mercy? Simply, only those who show mercy will receive it, by the way. Matthew 6.14 says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your, heavenly, your Father forgive you your trespasses. James chapter 2, verse 13, For he shall have judgment without mercy, that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Mercy is a mark of salvation. Believers, let me tell you something. If you can go through this life and never show mercy to someone else, I don't believe you're saved for a moment. And the Word of God justifies it. We're told, listen to this, then came Peter, this is uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, when, when we have a brother who has come against us and has said something about us or to us or from us or whatever, and it is part of that where we're holding it against them, how often are we supposed to forgive them? Well, Jesus says, I say not unto you until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Does that mean that after 490 times we've forgiven that brother, we stop forgiving? And the answer is absolutely no. And he goes on to tell about a, a story of a king who, who had servants who owed him a great debt and how he forgave one of millions and millions of dollars in debt. But then when that servant had a servant who owed him a little bit, he didn't forgive him and didn't show him mercy and threw him in the prison to pay back the debt. And what we discovered is the king found out about, found out about it and threw him in, debt, in, in the prison as well and had him cast in there. So why? Why don't we show mercy? I don't know. If you've been shown mercy, the mercies of God, shouldn't you show mercy as well? Now that's the whole point of that. So let me ask you today. If you read in the truth of the Word of God that He is coming back, you read in the truth of the Word of God that He desires to save those who are lost, and you know that you have sinned against God. See, sinning against God is simple. Sin means to miss the mark, or in, in other words, to transgress the law, 1 John 3, 4. If you've done that and you see it in the truth of the Word of God, and yet He, he offers you salvation, He offers you grace, and you don't take it, Shame on you, because he's offering it full and free for you. Now, on the other side, if you've, if you've received the grace of God, but you're refusing to show mercy to others after you've seen mercy, shame on you. Because it's our responsibility to show mercy as believers. We're to show mercy by giving the gospel away to people, telling them that Jesus saves all day. My hope and my prayer this morning is that you see that God, through God's truth, you can receive the grace of God. And by the grace of God, you understand what mercy truly is. Let's stand.